0: The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 60 of The Things We All Carry. Doug is a retired assistant chief from the heartland of America. He spent the majority of his career as a paid guy in a volunteer system. He brings a unique perspective to the show as he's been out of the game for seven plus years now. Mike sent me an email to mystory@thethingsweallcarry.com a while back. It caught my eye because it wasn't a typical response that I get. His subject matter was the makeshift memorials you find on the side of the road. We all know them and see them marking the spot a loved one died. Mike's take on it is a little different, and I tend to agree with him. We as first responders have a difficult time relinquishing some memories, and these memorials actually serve to refresh our memories each time we see them. Speaking from my own perspective, I can't drive through my county and not identify spots where I've cut people out of cars, performed CPR, attended to a battered and mangled body from a hit and run, or that one time I pulled the truck over to block traffic and found the issue to be a dog slowly and painfully dying after being struck by a car. These stand out to me and hit me at various times and places. I can understand how these memorials can serve as a trigger for those involved from the rescue side of an accident. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at thethingsweallcarry or email mystory at thethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you love or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. So tonight I have Doug from Kansas joining the program. Doug sent me an email. Oh, man, how long ago, Doug? Almost as, what, six, seven months ago? Yep, it's
1: about that.
0: And in typical fashion for me and anybody that knows me with my ADHD and my, what I like to call my handicap, which some people just call bullshit on me. But typical fashion for me, it got stuck in an inbox and I forgot to respond and I was doing a search one day and came across it again and said, "Hey, I got to talk to this guy. And so I called him up, talked to him on the way home from work one day, and I thought he was a perfect fit for the show. Welcome, Doug. Welcome. Thank you for being patient and waiting for me to get back to you.
1: Thanks. I, I appreciate you reaching out to me and I'm um, honored to be here.
0: We have a long lost friend down the road that we both found out that we know. And I give a shout out to Sean for hooking us up. And he'll wear that little feather in his cap, so I had to give it to him. He deserves that. Everything he puts up with. <laughs> so if you know if you know him, that's funny because Sean usually is the one making people put up with something. So we'll leave it at that. All right. So Doug, where are you at tonight?
1: Sitting in the heart of Kansas.
0: So, so that's strictly the heartland of America, huh?
1: It is. Yep.
0: Did you grow up in Kansas?
1: I did. Yeah.
0: So why don't Pretty you tell? Life longer than him. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and specifically what part of Kansas and what family life was like?
1: Yeah, started out life in the east central part of Kansas, southern Johnson County, and northern Miami County, around of Spring Hill. lived there until I was ten. Both my parents were teachers, educators, so I grew up around teachers all the time. Always get to be the teacher's kid, which sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. When I got about 10 years old, early 1980, we moved to a little town called Alma. It's in the heart of the Flint Hills. Um, And it happened to be my mother's hometown. So moved there. We'd always visited there, visiting grandparents and cousins and relatives and and spent quite a bit of time. And moving into this little town of 900 people was a little bit of culture shock. But on the other hand, it's, it was a town that been in many times and was one of the places where nobody locked their doors and you could ride, your bike. And when the street lights came on, you went home. That's the way, kind of the way we did that. Again, parents, mother was an elementary teacher. Dad was a high school math and science teacher. I was pretty much guaranteed in this little tent, the little uh, small high school that only had about 150 kids in it. You were pretty much guaranteed you're going to take your dad's class. So got to do that which was never a bad thing. I always made sure I had my homework done. So I guess that was good that it was following up with me. But it's a small rural agriculture type town to grow up in, which is good. Uh, I can't hardly be in a big town, a big city. So for me, that, that was a good way to go. After high school, I went to a university that was nearby and moved to a bigger town and pretty much I reached down there. That was the late eighties and it was a town of, of at the time, about 30,000 people. That's grown a little bit since then. Went to college for a few years. Didn't really, in the first several years were good. I was a good test taker. I was not a good class attender. And so that kind of led to later on in, in school of being invited not to go to school anymore. And they pretty much said, Hey, you need to do something different and it's not gonna be not gonna be college anymore. One of my part-time gigs, I, I started driving a school bus and that was in the fall of nineteen ninety-two. I picked up I had already gotten a commercial driver's license. Actually the precursor to the commercial driver's license. And one of the things that I put on my driver's license was for to drive a bus. And I thought maybe I'll need that somewhere down the road. So I started driving a school bus and one of the guys that was at the bus bar was a volunteer fireman and he wore the jacket and t-shirt had the pager on his belt and he found out that i lived in an area that was outside of the city limits and that was the area protected by the volunteer fire department from the county and that that i should i should sign up and be a volunteer fireman and to me that kind of sounded it sounded good i didn't want to i didn't really want to go into that but It sounded like something fun to do on the side. Back then you pretty much just put your name on a piece of paper and then the chief would call you the next week and say, Hey, come in and get your stuff because you're on the fire department now. So that was the way I got into it. I was, when I left college, I actually needed a job, needed to find a job. And the school bus gig wasn't really paying, paying the bills and it wasn't going to be full time. And so I looked around and found a job that every 22 year old in the world might want, and that was to be a beer salesman. I drove a truck been in the semi that, that hauled beer, and I went around and sold it to convenience stores and taverns and bars and liquor stores, and basically drove around and sold beer. And that's a job that every 22 year old would want because I still had all my friends were still in college, my girlfriend at the time. Later became my fiance, she was still going to college. And so all of my friend group were college people. And let me tell you, you can be the most popular guy around if you sell beer and bring it home for free. And so got a lot of friends, kept a lot of friends that way. And I thought, man, that's the way to go. Um, it, it was a good job. Got married later and it was in 1993, got married and was still doing the job, selling beer. And figured I needed a different one, so I got a got another job moving houses. When I say moving houses, I'm not talking like a trailer house. I'm talking about a full size big house that you pick up and put steel under and put some wheels on it and drag it down the road. That was the kind of house moving I did. Learned a lot about construction, learned a lot about how homes are built and so that was a that was a cool gig to do. And all of this time totally, I was still doing the volunteer fireman thing. So I was on that county department for several years while I was bouncing around doing beer sales and house moving. After I was married, I got to thinking, man, I really need to find a career or not have a job. And so one of the first things that I did was back in the local hometown, the highway patrolman said, hey, we're hiring at the... Highway Patrol, you ought to put in a, a packet for that. So he gave me a big six packets for applying for the Highway Patrol. And this is pre-computers. Nobody had computers in their homes. So you filled everything out by hand, and I submitted that application. So while I was still moving houses, I started going through that process. And it started out written test. Uh, when I went to the written test, it was on a Saturday in the middle of the state. And it was the only written test they had. For the highway patrol that year and there was over 300 people in the room and then i thought oh, shoot this isn't going to take very long so i went through did the written test within a week i got a phone call from him saying pass the written test you're going to go to the next level which is going to be the physical agility test and there's four locations that you'll go that, that you can go to through the dates you need to give us a date right now and tell us where we'd go. One of them was on a Saturday. I could do that one. Didn't have to take off from work. So I went to that one. When I got to there, there was about 40 people there, maybe less. So I did the math in my head real quick and thought, Shoot, I must've been in the top half of this because there's about maybe 150 people left. That up next week, I got called again and again, this is before Emails or any of that, they would call you on the phone. I worked all day long. So most of the time it was a return call because they left it on the answer machine. So got another call that I passed the physical agility test of being invited to the psych evaluation. The day that they had the psych evaluation, it snowed about five inches. And I thought, surely they'll cancel this. And I called them and they said, Are you canceling this? They said, Nope, you got to get here. Hey, this is important. I'm gonna go do it. Drove all the way, um, drove to Topeka, did the psych evaluation. Less than a week later, they called me again and said, Hey, yeah, you're good there. We want you to go to the next step, which is the interview with the superintendent and the assistant superintendent. Didn't snow. I did have to take off some work for that one, but I went all the way to Topeka again, did the interview, um, felt pretty good about it, and at the end of the interview, the superintendent superintendent said here's the problem they just cut our funding and we're not going to be able to have an academy this year where we would like to offer you a position but we can't at this time so if within the next 365 days we get our funding back we would offer you a position and I said okay cool that doesn't sound very promising whatever I left that interview, and that night or maybe it was a couple nights later, read in the newspaper, and that's those things made on a paper where they print and throw on your porch step. I read the paper where the local fire department was hiring for firefighters, and it was the same type of process of what I just went through. You're going to do a rep test, you're going to do a physical agility test. I don't think they did a psych exam back then, but pretty much the same process. I thought, there's no way in the world they're going to restore this funding in time. And so this was late March, it was late April. And then so I went in and sold out a packet on that one and started that process. Went through that whole process again. The day that they had the written test, there was probably 90 people there. And I knew they were only going to be, I think there was a total of 10 that they were hiring. So At that time, I thought, man, I don't know, if I got a very good chance at this. So I went ahead and took the test. Next week, got the call. Hey, you passed that. Come in and do the physical agility test. Came in, did the physical agility test. They called me a week later and said, we're ready for an interview. We didn't get the interview. And then a week later, they called and said, hey, we're offering you the job. You got to go do a medical exam now. So went and did the medical exam and... I think it was the late May of 93, started the academy, which was local to there. There was no prerequisites. We didn't have to have anything other than a heartbeat and be able to fog a mirror. They did check the fogging mirror thing. That was good that they did that. Went through six weeks of academy, which was put on by the local fire department. Usually it was the on-duty lieutenant up at headquarters was the one who was going to do the teaching that day. And they basically read to us out of the red book. And when I say the red book, the if's the manual. Back then, I believe it was edition two, Essentials of Firefighting.
0: There've been a few more editions so, since then.
1: Yeah, There's been a couple more since then. <laughs> the funny thing was, the county was teaching Essentials already, and we were on edition three. But the city fire department, who was paid, they were only using it, edition two. But they hadn't upgraded yet. I already knew some of the stuff. Uh, basically went on shift, started out on B shift, which anybody out there knows B shift is the one to be on. The unfortunate part is usually you have to clean up whatever A shift got dirty and fix whatever C shift broke.
0: See, I knew, I knew we'd get along just fine. So that works for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, B shifters were the ones to be. Um, Hey, I was happy with that.
0: My first year though,
1: I got to spend up at headquarters. The problem with being the new guy at headquarters is at the end, we did our own dispatching. So I got to be the dispatcher. Low man Tony Polk was in the box. So from eight to five, you were assured to be in the box. And then if we had a student firefighter from the local university that happened to be on in the evening, they would take the box from five to eight. So you might get a ride out on the truck. Unfortunately, I never got a whole lot of opportunities that first year to ride the truck. I did a couple times. But most of the time I spent in dispatch, it wasn't a bad thing other than the fact that from eight, five, we were working and the work was oftentimes doing reporting. So we would take the handwritten reports, the lieutenants did, and we typed them. Yeah, I said, type with an IBM selector. We're not putting this on a computer, You're type on a triplicate form. You make a mistake, you start all over again. That was not always fun, but I'm glad that I paid attention in typing class because it, it did help me greatly. It also got me to where I could decipher some people's handwriting too. Um, but that was what the dispatcher had to deal from eight five. We were uh, not to mention if there was a call, then you had to go and dispatch it. Uh, back in the, Back in those days, the nine one one center would take the phone call, and then there was a yeah, there was a ring down hotline between the nine one 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 center and the fire department dispatch where they would pick up the phone and as soon as they picked up the phone, it would go through all three fire stations at the time. It was over their intercom so the firefighters could hear the conversation between the two dispatchers, between the nine one 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 operator and the fire department dispatcher. And whenever they picked up that phone, there was this big click and mm-hmm. it was a very loud click and you could hear it on all of the station PA speakers. And as soon as that click happened, everybody just would instantly stop what they were doing. And you could be anywhere. And if you heard a click that that was similar to that, it was just second nature to just stop what you were doing and listen. Whether it was, whether you were standing in Walmart or whether you were standing in a fire station, you had the same reaction to that click. My second year on the department, I actually got an opportunity to go to a different station. I went to the downtown station, which was in our little college town, it's not far from the bar district. So we had a lot, we had a lot of calls that were associated with the bar district, whether it was a couch on fire in the middle of the street or somebody having a barn in the backyard. This was the early nineties. We didn't do EMS. We just did fire. EMS was separate. It was a separate department. It was run by the county and it was something totally different. And it wasn't the county fire department, it was run by the county mess and it was associated with the hospital. So we didn't run EMS calls. The only time we were there and EMS was there, they came to our spire or we all went to a wreck and we had to cut somebody out of a car for it. And that was the extent of that. So still had, I I didn't have EMT. I didn't have any of that stuff. We didn't even have to be first responders at the time. Just basic first aid and CPR is all we really knew. And that was probably just to work on each other if we needed to, but we were never called to EMS calls. There were a couple times where we'd have to go on a lift assist or something like that, but it was not at the initial alarm. We weren't around EMS. We slept all night most of the time, unless it was finals week or after finals week or something like that. We would go out on calls like that, but for the most part, we didn't run EMS. We weren't up with whole hours of the night. We slept all night long and and we heard from the cops and the paramedics that, that we got paid to sleep. And we said, darn Well
0: That's funny. I, people used to make jokes about slow stations. Oh, you get paid to sleep or we sleep sled for, sir, for a truck or a rescue or whatever. And nowadays, there, there are a lot of people, myself included, say, yeah, hell yeah, I get to sleep all night. Cause, and I, and I, I appreciate it because I, I want to run my calls, but I also don't want to be up all night. And I think that as more of the science is proving out, is you don't want to be up all night. That correct? Yeah. So I know you you spent how many years in the career department?
1: The career department. I was there from ninety three, and then in in March of ninety five, the longtime county fire chief decided he was retiring. They moved the assistant chief up to the county spot, and then they had an opening for the assistant fire chief. So the assistant fire chief of the county fire department, they were looking for somebody who could, could. do reporting, which I knew how to do. They were looking for somebody who knew how to work on fire trucks, which I did some odd jobs where I was a small engine mechanic, and back then all the fire trucks, their pumps were pony motors. So they had a separate motor on the back, which usually a Briggs and Strat 11 or 18 horsepower motor operating a pump. So. I knew about that, so I threw in my app for that and got hired as the assistant fire chief. So I went from basically a firefighter up to assistant chief. So in March of 1995, I started with the county and basically left shift work. So it was Monday through Friday, eight to five hours, but it was pretty much, you're on call all the time. And so if you were at home and it was the middle of the night, you had an alarm or gas fire car wreck or whatever then you were leaving and you were going to that
0: it department to us a little bit because i'm familiar with the area and that's another connection that you and i have because i went to school where you're talking i, I um i graduated from the same college that you're speaking about it. and so i know the area and i know the county versus the town or the towns around it but explain how your department was how the county department was organized and what kind of an area it's it served yeah, so this department started
1: in the late 60s. It was 1967, and it was one of the first counties in Kansas that established an all-county fire department that it was just a single department. A lot of what they had in, in Kansas were in townships. They would utilize the township system. Each of the counties would have seven or eight or ten townships, and so then they'd have seven or eight or ten different fire departments. The way our county did it was they established it as a single fire district and everything outside the city limits of the main class one city was in the fire district. And it had four small towns and they were class three towns. So they were, they were small. They had a small local government, but they had a fire department too. But if you were in that city, you still paid the tax to be in the fire district and as that first. This street, we, we actually started out, we had, at the time they started out with, with 13 different stations. And then later on, the bigger township that was around the city had been run by contract with the city fire department. And the city decided they were going to get out of it in 1980. And so they said, we're out, you're going to have to get others. So they built three more fire stations. So we ended up with 16 fire stations spread out over 600 square miles. The county itself is about roughly 40 miles long and about 20 to 25 miles wide. So very big area, but we had a lake that went up one one quarter of it. So it was kind of off and it was shipped a little bit different. But 600 square miles with 16 fire stations, we strove to get at least 90% 90% of the homes within five miles of a fire station. And they did that for insurance reasons. So the insurance service office was one who would rate your stations or your department. And then what you pay in fire insurance was based off of that rating. So a 10 is the worst. And then as you move down, and get into large cities, they're going to be an ISO class one. Well, that's the biggest and the brightest. And but those are very big professional fire departments or very, very big career fire departments that, that provide all those services. With my county, it was mostly a nine. And then in 1995, when, we, when I got on and we had an fire chief, we started looking at buying fire trucks. And when I say fire trucks, if you say fire truck, most of your listeners who are firefighters are going to say, "What's the difference between a fire truck and what you had before?" We were utilizing it before was surplus property that we got through the Kansas Forest Service, um, military goose and a half, or five tons. So we used excess military fire equipment or excess military trucks and turned them into the fire trucks. We put a tank on them, a pump, and then you would go out and fight fires with those. That's what we had up until that point. In fact, when I started in 1995, a majority of the fleet were 1952 GMC Duesenhaar. If anybody's ever seen one of these, they're the kind that you would see on MASH. They're older trunks. They had automatic transmissions, no power steering, and a little bitty tiny six-cylinder gas engine, and gearing like you wouldn't believe. The top speed was probably 40 miles an hour. and but when you get off road, whether they put them in the road, you could go anywhere you wanted to in a couple places you didn't. So the area that we were in, everybody says Kansas, and your listeners are going to think, oh, it's Kansas, it's flat. But what people don't understand is there's not much of Kansas flat. If you drive down to Interstate 70 and you get out in Western Kansas and there's wheat fields on either side, that's flat. But the rest of Kansas, we have hills and the Flint Hills is very rough terrain. It can be very extreme, and it can be very steep. And the Flint Hills of Kansas, which we're very much a part of where we're at, we have the tall grass prairie. And when I say tall grass prairie, this is grass that's anywhere from three feet total up to eight feet tall. And it burns every year to bring in the new grass, and they do that for grazing cattle. They get rid of the old and they bring it in the new. The problem is when you have eight feet tall grass, you have 40 foot tall flames. And you can't really control 40 foot tall flames. If the wind speeds over about 15 miles an hour, you're going to lose a fire and it's gone. And then you call the fire department, to go out and put it out. Majority of The fires we fought were grass fires. When people think of wildland fires, they think of forest fires out west. And if you talk to somebody who is a forest firefighter, I I used to say, man, those guys are crazy for fighting fires in forests, big tall trees and big tall flames, what they deal with. But when I tell them I fight fires in grassland and in flashy fuels, they tell me I'm crazy because the fire will move as fast as wind speed. So if the wind's blowing 40 miles an hour, the fire will move faster than 40 miles an hour, and this is not terrain. You can drive 40 miles an hour. Every wildland fire that we fought was... Um, it could get airy really quick on you. The other problem is that as areas develop, but you start to have the wildland urban interface where people start building houses where there didn't used to be houses, then they stop burning around them. And once you stop burning, then now you get cedar trees. Once the cedar trees encroach on that, you just as well stack gas cans because cedar trees explode like a gas can of gas that was something we dealt with on a yearly basis the other thing was that a wildland fire out west in the forest you have a fire there it's not gonna burn again for 10 years you're not gonna have another fire there in 10 years we have the same fire over and over every year because next year the grass is going to be three to eight feet tall again and it's just it's normal for us to go through and deal with that. So that was a majority of the fires that we fought out of the county. Most of the time, the the edge of the city, when the fire is moving towards it, we were in close conjunction with those guys. We, we did that for many years and as we continued to improve our equipment and work set up so much, we used to tell people that we put out grass fires and watch houses burn the ground, which really was true. Um, I can remember back when I was a volunteer. One of the first house fires I went to, I got lectured by the fire chief for pulling an inch and a half line. He says, "You don't use that line. Why not?" He said, "Because you use up water too fast. Pull that booster line. It only uses forty gallons a minute." <laughs> Backwards, chief. You want to put fire out rapidly if we put a lot of water on it really quickly. It won't go out quicker. And he says, "Oh." Would- We'll run out of water too fast. So when he retired and the new regime moved in and we started looking at things differently, that we got an opportunity to change that mindset. And buying real fire trucks, which was one of our first goals, was to actually get fire trucks, was something that started to improve the department. And that's what we were after. In 96, we bought our very first in the fire truck, we bought a new 1995 D1 that was a pumper. It was a class A pumper. It had a 1,000-gallon tank and a 1250 pump. And you could actually put out fire without it. And It was brand new. Back then, they were less than $100,000. We could afford to do that. And we, as we continue to improve our fire equipment, we also improve the mindset of the firefighters, I said we had 16 fire stations and those were, were spread throughout the entire county. We had over 175 firefighters. At the time, we were the fourth largest fire department in the state of Kansas. And the only people paid were myself and the chief. Everybody else was a volunteer. We get the training all in-house. That was the other thing. I became an instructor in 1996, fire service instructor. So I took that class. It gave me a lot of opportunity. I went in and took the fire service instructor. I took hazmat Tech. I took the fire apparatus operator. I took fire officer. Uh, Those were all classes that typically in a career department, you would take each one of those one at a time. So this year I'm going to take, I'm going to take firefighter and then I'm going to take fire apparatus operator, and then I'm going to take fire officer. And if I get promoted, then I might be able to become a fire service instructor. And then I might be able to do this as you kept going. I was taking two, three classes a year and getting different certifications. And because I had to be a jack of all trades and as only two paid people, we had to rely heavily on our volunteers and that was stuff that they weren't going to do. But the training aspect of it was probably the most, which was why I took the fire service instructor initially was because I knew that we were going to have to train all these guys and we did it several times a month. 96 is when I first took EMT. The chief came up to me and and says, hey, if you're going to be responding to all this stuff, you just look well, at your EMT. So in 96, I actually became EMT, went through that class while I was... I'd do that at night when I was off duty. And there were a couple times I had to leave class, go to a fire call, but it didn't happen very often. Sometimes it was smaller stuff that other people could handle. There was only a couple of times when I had to leave. was understanding and knew what the deal was and would, would let me go. So, again, we still weren't running EMS, but we were running social Uh So, we were starting to get into the mindset of acting like Career fire departments were doing. The city fire department still wasn't doing that yet. And so we had people that were training as first responders that were starting to go on calls because mm-hmm. this, the town, the city, was where EMS was located. And so for some parts of the county, it was a 30 or 40 mile drive to get the ambulance to them. So having us to where we could start. Pushing out first responders to do patient care prior to their arrival was huge. And we, we started getting citizens on board for doing that. Uh, we, people who wanted to do the first responder, we'd have them join the fire department so that we could have extra people on the fire department. But also that we could provide training, we could provide protocols, we could provide insurance, the things that they needed to be covered as volunteer employees. We started that.
0: And
1: we got it going in 96,
0: 97 and just kept improving the department and we went. So one of the, we'll focus on something here with the, uh, I was going to say the way you reached out to me was a, was a little thing you wrote called Roadside Memories. Yep. And I think that's, I think that it's. It spoke to me because it came to me as in a different vision of what we think of when we think of the tragedies that we all experience in a fire service. You approached it from a different angle, one that hasn't been approached, or at least an approach that hasn't been taken with me before. And I appreciated it. And I thought it was, I'll even go as far as to say a little poetic. And what I like to do is read through that and then we can discuss it a little bit if you're okay with that. Yeah. And like I said, it's entitled Roadside Memories simple roadside memories. And it goes on to say, I'm not sure what stirs the memory. Perhaps it's the weather outside at a certain location. Maybe it's the time of year when I drive by. It happened to me again, the other day, I was driving down the road and I passed a roadside Memorial. You've seen them before, a, cr- a cross or crosses on the side of the road. Sometimes they have flowers faded and snow covered. Other times they may be fresh. They're all sizes, shapes and colors, and ev- and ev- but eventually all will fade and weather. To some, they have a meaning of a loved one or friend, but for me, they're a memory of something that I long to forget. You see, someone died at that place on the road. Chances are, if it was my county, I responded. To me, it represents a place where I had to do a difficult and dangerous job, often under stress, traffic flying by, bad weather, multiple victims, no two alike. I did my job to the best of my ability. I tried to save a life, but sometimes bad things happen to good people. My faith tells me that there that they no longer suffer, but I know that friends and family will when someone else makes the notification. Often these grieving families and friends erect these roadside memorials at the exact spot where the loved one died. I can only say that it wasn't a nice way to die. It was violent and chaotic. It is, is that how you want to remember your loved one or friend? I can think of many ways are better remember somebody who was close to me. I'd prefer to remember how they lived, not how they died. Perhaps a living memorial in the form of a tree planted. At a favorite park or school would serve a higher purpose. Imagine how wonderful it would be to return to that place for many years, watch it grow and provide for an entire community. It could stand for life, shelter, shade, and comfort in a place that meant something to your loved one or a friend. A gathering place for friends and family, and a safe location to stir up memories. Excuse me, to stir up memories of how they lived, not how they died. In some states, roadside memorials have been outlawed. Often, families have the choice of erecting a sign that reminds motorists to buckle up. We're not drinking drive. These signs are better than the crosses on the side of the road and they send a positive message, but do they really stand for that person's life? I've been doing this job for many years. I chose to do it. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to have a small part in saving numerous lives. There are no roadside memorials for those calls. And because of that, I don't remember them. A cross on the side of the road stands for someone who lost their life in that location. It stands for a single moment in time when the worst did happen. I want to forget what I saw that day or night. I want the memory to fade away as bad as you want every, as you want to remember everything you can about the person you love is a roadside memory that important to you, it sure isn't for me. So let's go into that a little bit. Let's talk about those roadside memories. Cause we all see them. And just like you said, they represent something completely different to a first responder than they do to a family member. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I see them everywhere. like current job, where I drive around. I'm involved in sales and I cover a much bigger area than I used to, over 140,000 square miles. I see these things everywhere. Sometimes they're as simple as it just has a cross or um, some flowers stuck on the side of the road. I've seen some of them that are hugely elaborate. They have lights and they have stones and it's almost like somebody's buried right there. We used to joke back in the day that it's a funny place to bury somebody but those things are everywhere and it doesn't matter what state you're in you see them wherever you go um i always think in terms of the guys gals who are volunteer firefighters and the fact that's not very far from their house or that's not very far from their town or their station they drive by that every day and they see it every day and none of them None of the scenes that we went to were pretty. They were There's crosses there. It was an ugly night. And we know it. And yet, we have to drive by that every, every single day. I don't, don't see the ones that are in my county much anymore, but I do. Every once in a while. And I see them other places. And I just, sometimes it's, like I said, in that, sometimes it, I don't even think about it. I just drive by it but that day that I drive by that it's rainy out or if it's snowing. And if that was the conditions that night, I could see that whole scene in my head. I see everything about it. I see everything that, that was going on. Yeah. Those, it's not fun. You don't want to remember those things. You talk a lot in your podcast about people who deal with those demons and those ghosts and that what that they work, that they can't ever get out of their head, and yet pure, constant reminders on the side of the road. I understand why people want to remember their loved ones. I just don't understand why they want to remember them there. And it's one of those that, you know, I, I can, like I said, I could drive by there one time and not see a single thing, but then I drive by there on a day that the temperature or the time of year or the weather conditions, whatever it is. It's exactly like it was. And it just pops right back into my head and I to see every single thing that went on that night. And I remember some of them that we, I might've been there for hours, but yet I can remember every detail for those hours. I mean, sometimes I get up walking in the kitchen, can't remember what I went for. And then there are times where I can remember every single thing about a call that was 15 years ago. And I can tell you just about every single component and everything that happened that night, and it's with clarity. And I didn't remember it like it was yesterday. I've been out of the business for 10 years and I can still remember some of those calls and they're everywhere. I drive in different States now and I still see them. In fact, this last week I went on a business trip. I knew this call was coming, and I knew you and I were talking. I just, I kept a tally and just in my 274 mile trip one way. I counted 32 roadside memorials.
0: 32? <laughs>
1: 32. 32. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't believe that number until I started looking at those tally marks on my piece of paper I had sitting next to me. That was in two different states. It was on different sizes of highways, anything from interstate highways to super Forest to two-lane roads. It was counted 32 of them. So, there's more of them out there than I know. And every it's one of those The amazing things that as you're driving around and you think about it, you don't see those things in the city. You don't. So, guys on a career department may not see those things. When was the last time you had a roadside memorial at an intersection in a town where there was a collision? Probably don't have it. There might be one. They could be there. And they just don't see them. But when you're out on the highway, when you're out on the road, where 80% of the firefighters in this nation are volunteers, maybe less now, but it was 10 years ago, I know. Most of those roadside memorials on highways that are rural, that are outside of towns, probably volunteer firefighters, probably volunteer EMS, because that's what's protecting those areas, even out on the interstate highway. Those mostly are not in the city. They're outside of the big cities, so there might be paid once you get in closer into the suburbs. But once you get out on those rural areas where it's a couple of miles between exits, you can better believe that's an area covered by volunteer. And every time I see those, I still think of that, and that was one of the big things with our firefighters is we don't have a kitchen table. We don't go back to the firehouse and sit down at the kitchen table and talk about those things. When we're done, when we're done, we go back, pardon me, we go back, clean up our gear and go home. Sometimes people don't even do that. Sometimes they just get their cars and go home from the scene. They may not even be on the rig. So they may not even go back to the fire station. Most of our fire stations didn't have a table. There was only a couple of them that even had a bathroom in them. So it's not like we sat around the fire station and talked about those calls afterwards. So that was always one of the aspects of my job that I always made sure to follow up with people the next day. Cause I, I knew it was a great call. I knew that it was a bad call. So I wanted to follow up with people the day after. And when you start thinking about all these roadside signs and memorials that are out there are in rural areas and probably covered by volunteers.
0: Yeah. And that's definitely one of the things you and I talked about was that SISM or the, the debriefing for volunteers and how that goes. Cause I, to be honest with you, I'm not familiar with it. And so what was your experience? Most of the
1: time we held if we had a call, it was bad. If we had a call that more than one person talked to me about it, we would arrange a critical incident stress debriefing or some type of organized critical incident stress management, or we would get together professionals. At the time, we were using some local mental health professionals. We would call in some of the people from the career department or some of the EMS people, but we would get together and essentially we would talk about what we saw that day, we would talk about our role in the incident, and then we would talk about if we were having problems with it. they always ended it with the mental health professionals who tell you, if you're having problems, if you're having problems coping or dealing with it, or if you're getting in fights with your loved ones and it goes back to this one call, then maybe we need to have one-on-one session. This is late 90s, early 2000s. That's the way we handled it. We did have a, an employee assistance program that our firefighters had access to. But I don't think anybody ever took advantage of it. Most of the time, it was just, we would sit down and talk about it. We would try to follow up with people to make sure that they were doing okay. Make sure that they were handling stuff. We we're very close to a, to an army base. And so many of our firefighters also, and so some of those guys, they were coming back from deployments and so they had already been involved. Some trauma associated with combat. And so we always tried to follow up with those guys and to see if they had a problem. There was a couple of them. We had to actually sit down and try to get them some different help. It was most of the time the critical incident stress debriefings were organized within 72 hours of the incident so that we could try to keep things fresh for people. If it went over that, it really wasn't. You weren't going to get that many people to come in. So sometimes these were a long time, depending on what type of a call we went on, anything that we dealt with, whether it was a fatal fire, or it was a, you know, if so it was a car crash or, or something along that line, we would try to get people to go to those if they could. Again, sometimes people couldn't get to them because they were or they weren't available, or they had their kid's basketball game or something along that line. It was still voluntary. I mean, nobody was required to go to it. And we're just trying to provide them with something in case they were needing it.
0: So what was, what do you think was the average buy-in from the volunteers you worked with?
1: On some of the ones that were really bad, um, we would have nearly 90% to 100%, which was good. If it was a smaller incident, that didn't involve as many people. We didn't always get as many people to, to buy in on those. Some people would just shrug it off and say, Nah, I'm good. I don't have a problem. And would move on. We did have an incident back in 95 that, that was a line of duty death. And it was one of our firefighters was, they were called out to a Baylor fire. And as they were responding to the scene, one of the firefighters was going to stop another firefighter. And there was another firefighter behind him in a separate vehicle, and he just thought he was slowing down and didn't know what was going on, and he wanted not be the first one in the station. So he started passing it, and as the firefighter turned into this other firefighter's drive, it collided, and the one ended up being killed. And so out of that, we ended up having 100% of everybody who responded to not only the fire that they were initially paged to, as well as the incident involving the two firefighters that collided, um, resulting in one of them being killed. So out of that one, we had 100%. And there were still people. We ended up losing a firefighter to a line of duty death, but we lost another firefighter because he said he'd never do it again. The guy that collided with him happened to be his best friend. So he was done. He wasn't ever going to. He wasn't ever going to respond to another fire. He wasn't ever going go to go on training again because it was, it was devastating for him. He was never charged with anything. There were never any charges filed, but that guy still had to live with that for the rest of his life and he didn't respond anymore. He was done not long after the incident. Understandably, absolutely. It was pretty tough and yeah. we had to deal with that. If there's anything good comes out of something like that, we actually there was a legislation that ended up coming out of that incident because workers' comp stated that he hadn't arrived at the fire station yet, yeah. and so it wasn't mm-hmm. a line of doing death. And yeah. legislation passed that stated that within the state of Kansas, the moment you were notified of the purchase and you were responding, you were an employee. The individual's parents ended up getting their line of duty death benefit, but it was one of those that we had to fight for. And so nothing good ever comes from one of these incidents, but that's something that came out of it, that, that made it to where we wouldn't have to go through that again.
0: And at least not through that battle again. Yeah.
1: At least not through that battle again,
0: because you had to relive
1: that whole thing over again. For me, I'd only been on the department as the assistant chief a few months when that occurred. So that's when I found out about OSHA and training records and how they conduct the line of duty death investigation. When the feds come in to do their thing, what what goes on with that? I was not very old. I was 25 years old, and I was going through that as an assistant chief i been on the job as an assistant chief for six months. And that is probably one of the reasons why I seen it. I want to get all this training. I want to go to these classes, do this. I want to make sure that we're doing everything we can do things right. Because if we ever have to do this again, I don't want to answer some of those questions. and I have answers for some of those questions for how we treat people and why do we do some of the things that we do.
0: Let's talk about, you bought a fire truck. A tiller, to be exact, correct? Correct. Let's talk about the school bus incident and how that affected you and where you went from there. And so in 2000, I bought a fire truck
1: with a friend of mine who was also a firefighter. Actually, there were three of us went together. The other guy was a career firefighter in a different town, but he had started out as a firefighter in, in the county. In fact, on the station that I was originally on. And we got an opportunity to... Buy this attractor drawn aerial. It came out of the Virginia area. We went out, bought it, drove it home. We were young and dumb, just full of energy, and we just drove out there and drove this thing back. Never been driven once, about 10 minutes in one direction in its entire career. And here we were going to drive this thing for 26 hours. Not the best of ideas, but we bought the thing as a hobby. we initially bought it to go tailgating at the games from the university, um, and we had a great time with it. It was white already, and so we put a put another stripe on there that corresponded with the colors, and we would take a tailgate. It was the most unique tailgate vehicle out there. Because of that, we got a lot of press. People wanted to know about the fire truck. We we had our flag, the highest in, in the parking lot. Nobody could beat our reach the a scene. Yeah. So we always had our flag flying and had that ladder up. We would tailgate and have a good time. So it was a hobby and it was a good way to get away from the job while still loving the job. Firemen always do that. Firemen always dream about owning a fire truck. So here I was going to own, own my own
0: fire truck. And so we did. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone, you know, help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show. Wherever you happen to listen, feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. We
1: got into this rivalry with another tailgating vehicle that was very, very well known. The guy was a big donor to the university, had a lot of money, very flashy. And he drove that, he converted an old school bus into a tailgating vehicle. And so we always talked that we wanted to be as famous as he was, and he said, we'd never be that because he was parked up next to the stadium when we were parked out in the sheet pasture that was half a mile away from the stadium and we didn't have the money to go up there and park where he did and that's fine so we started hooking up with him and going to different tailgating events and then we would go down down the road to the arrival school and we did that a couple of years in a row he got a different bus one year and updated it, it looked a little better paint job was a lot better and they put a deck on it, and then they put this platform up on the top of it. So it's a full-size school bus that so have a platform up on top of it. And then when they would park and do their pre-game festivities, they would be up on top of that. They had big speakers up there, and they were jamming out music, you know, just having a good time. And we followed them down to down to the rivals' town. And when we got to the first place where we stopped, and the people who were riding on it went in to the store and got some, just, and when they did that, some guys got up on top of it and they were going to ride through the streets and town with our colors, and blaring their music and having a good time. So we were just following along because we were part of the show. And as we got closer and closer to the area where we were going to go park, we were following these guys and they went out on a couple of traffic lights and when they went under one of the traffic lights. So the tillers got a. it's two guys are driving this thing. So this guy in the front, guy in the back, we have an intercom just like they have now. So we had the headsets on and We were talking to each other yeah. and the, I was driving the front and the other guy who owns it with me is driving the back and from the tiller can he says, man, that guy was really close to that, that stoplight. light. So one of these days, somebody's going to fall off that thing and get hurt. It, it wasn't what? six blocks later. And he started approaching a the bridge. Then the guy in the back, he could see a lot more because he's sitting up higher, the cab and the tractor. And he said, They're not going to sit on that bridge. Those guys are on the top of that thing. They're not going to sit on that bridge. And I didn't know what to do. I was afraid if I turned home from my horn or whatever, they were just going to start, everybody was going to stand up and start celebrating and waving their arms up, thinking that we were getting them all riled up. But sure enough, they went underneath the bridge and wiped the guy right off the top of it. I saw the whole thing unfold, and I knew there was nothing I could do about it. And I saw the guy hit it. I saw him come down off the top, and he landed on the back porch of this thing, so he didn't fall in the middle of the street, but he lit on the back of that. And they didn't know what was going on. The driver of the bus just kept driving he didn't know what was going on. And so we caught up to him. And by this time, the other people on board that thing had already told him, say, hey, you need to pull over and stop. This guy hurt. And they stopped in the intersection. section. We pulled up behind him and threw all of our lights on because this 1971 Seagrave grade tractor ground aerial still has all of his lights on it. So we threw all the lights on and we pulled up behind him. I'm an EMT. The other guy owns it with me in the first responder, so we're going to We're going to get out and help. And I set the brake and got out, jumped up on the back. And the gentleman that was laying on the back step, he was obviously deceased, had injuries that were inconsistent with life. And there was a guy that was holding napkins on his head and said, you got to do something for him. And I said, yeah, there's nothing we can do for this guy. He says, no, you got to do CPR. And I said, no, there's nothing we can do for this guy. There's nothing we can do to help. And as I turned around, there was a police officer running up, and I think it was a university police officer from that university. And he came running up and started saying something to me, and I identified myself that I was an EMT, and I told him that this guy was Code Black, which at that time, Code Black was, well, was deceased. We're not work this. And he says, no, we got to do something for him. And I said, again, sir, there's nothing you can do for this guy. He's hurt. I never did I never did realize that my buddy had got on top of this bus and that there was more people hurt. I had tunnel vision that I was going to do something for this guy. And I knew there was nothing could do for it, but still I was insistent on doing that. And it, what seemed like forever, an, an engine company finally pulled up, but then more people started going and you realize that you're working on people that are on the top of a school bus. And. I remember jumping off of, of the back of this bus and going back to my ladder truck, pulling a ladder because we still had all the ground ladders that came to this truck. And I pulled a ladder and put it up, up on the bus so that we could get up on yeah, it and people could work yeah. on it. At the firemen right after, did what they were, had to do. It was enough that the one patient on the top that was, had a closed head injury. Uh, they actually did a seat flight right there from that mm-hmm. intersection with a helicopter and typically you don't know, get that type of an action in a town like that. You're not going to have a scene flight with a helicopter right at the scene. Typically you're going to scoop them, run to a hospital that they'll go from a helipad there, but it was one of those yeah. that they flew from right there. So knowing that you're like, okay, that person is extremely critical. You no, know he's extremely critical. But that incident that there was one guy and it was like, we aren't having fun here anymore. This is not the fun stuff that we signed up for. And now we've got to deal with the fact that, A, I'm a witness. B, somebody just died here doing the stuff that we used to call fun. And, so, and now we have another person that, that was super critical that, that may or may not. All said and done, we got done with that incident. And it was probably, I don't know. It was probably 45 minutes into this thing. And we both just sat down and looked at each other and went, this is a bad deal. And then I said, this is gonna, this is going to get out on the news. And this was in 2006. So people weren't posting it on Facebook instantly. That, that didn't occur back then. So the first thing I did was I said, I got to call my wife. This is going to be on the news. And. She didn't come along with us today and she's going to need it. It's going to be on the news. There was already cameras there. I said, our fire truck is in the background. It's going to be fairly obvious that we're at all this in some way. So that was my first phone call. I called her right away and said, Hey, look, you're going to see this. We're not injured, but you know, our day is done. And as soon as we're finished here, we're going to get the hell out of here and go home, which we do. For us, it was going to be several hours just from the logistics of getting back to where we needed to get back to and driving our 1971 C-grade fire truck that only goes 58 miles an hour.
0: Yeah, it's a, that's a long drive back to, to sit and think about it as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was one of those that you do a lot of thinking and we had the headsets on, but I don't know that we said anything. It was, it's funny that the first thing that we thought of doing, I remember making a comment to the captain or the lieutenant, whoever the officer was on the truck, on the, on the engine that showed up. I said, man, it took you guys forever to get here. He said, what are you talking about? I said, it must have been 15 minutes before you guys got here. He said, no, I just ran the times. He says, we were here in three minutes.
0: Yeah. And I remember when you said that to me, when we spoke the other day, you mentioned that and that that kind of opened both our eyes when you were talking about it because we think we get there in an instant. Okay, we have our four-minute response or a second do or a few more minutes than that, but whatever. We know how fast we're moving to get somewhere. I guess I never take it from the standpoint of a victim or an injured party or whatever it is of waiting for us to get there and how long that must feel for somebody. And so to hear you say that, it opens your eyes quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and as assistant chief, I had to take-home. So I always drove my vehicle and I couldn't tell you how many incidents that I would arrive at and I would have somebody that's there going, well, man, it took you forever to get here. I'm thinking, "Yeah, we got it pretty quick, dude. And so that was the first time in my life I sat there and saw it from the victim or the witness's point of view. It's an eternity. And then three minutes felt like 15 and it was just, it just went on and on. And I kept thinking, God, we just passed that fire station. Why are they not here? We just passed that fire station. Those guys should be here instantly. What the hell is taking them so? And I don't even remember hearing their siren, but I know that truck had a queue on the front of it. And I know that queue was blared the whole time because it's game day traffic. And I didn't hear their siren. And that's how you get when you're, that was the first time I realized television is a real deal and you have absolutely no clue what's going on. And I was so focused on that one guy who I couldn't do a damn thing for that I totally forgot that there was people up on top. And you know, I talked to, the, to, to my buddy that owns the fire truck and, and I told him, I said, Man, I'm sorry, I didn't go up there and help you I anything, mean, what do you mean? I said, there wasn't a thing I could do for this guy. He goes, we well, probably did more for sure the people standing around saying there's nothing you can do and we need to cover this guy up or we need to do something different. He goes, you probably did more there than you would have ever done up on top with me. Yeah. And I got to thinking about that too. I, that That's certainly a possibility. When we finally got released from the thing, the first thing that we said to each other, perhaps it's based upon experience of when we had both worked at that city fire department that I initially started out as a career. Uh, We said, let's run in the store, get some ice cream and drop it off at that fire station with those guys. So we went to the station, bought a gallon of ice cream, took it back to the fire station, dropped it off to those
0: guys. For us,
1: that was like, Hey, you guys can deal with this really shitty incident with this gallon of ice cream. I'm sure that'll help you. We didn't go back to ice cream. We in fact, we, I remember really were calling my wife saying, hey, we're on our way we home. We're going to get there. We're going to take our time. When we get there, we're going to, we're going to light a fire, out in The fire pit. I lived out in the country. And so I said, we're just going to, we're just going to have a bonfire tonight. Probably stay just talking. And she said, I'll have everything ready when you get home. So we probably smoked the cigars that we normally would have smoked at the, at the tailgate. And I uh, pretty certain that we probably cracked open a few cold beers and stood around that fire that night and talked. to this day. I couldn't tell you what we talked about. It was 17 years ago. I just, I couldn't tell you what we said. I don't know what we talked about. I just know that we stayed up all night and we watched the second moment before, I don't know if that made it better or not, but at the time that was what we needed and that's what we did.
0: So that incident, what does it lead to for you?
1: I haven't ever been down that road again. I got close to it one time. And with it, when I got close to it, my heart started racing and I started sweating. And I started feeling the physical effect of that anxiety. And I can't do this. That's not going to work. And so I, to this day, 17 years have not been anywhere near that site again. So couldn't tell you if there's a roadside memorial there. I don't, we went, we had to go through it again, because as you can imagine, when you have an attorney that sues the railroad, when he has it, it involves his own vehicle that results in a death that he, you can better believe he's going to be sued. So there were deposition, there were, I had to relive that three or four times. One of the things I do remember doing, I wrote down everything and the report, I've just been the one that went to this cult and I wrote everything down. And then I went to an attorney that was a friend of mine, a friend of mine that happened to be an attorney. And I told him about it and he said, well, you need representation or I'll help you. And I said, well, I wrote everything down. I got like a report. I wrote a narrative. And it was shredded, shredded and then burn it. He says, don't tell anybody. I guess I'm telling them myself here, but don't tell anybody you wrote that down. He said, shred it and burn it. He said, rely on your memory and hope that it fails. He goes, you want to forget everything about this. He goes, you're not a fireman right now. You're not an assistant. You're not an investigator. You are, you are Blow, citizen that witnessed the tragedy. And that's all you are as a witness. You don't want to be that guy who has to remember every single thing. When you're... Yeah. And I thought that was pretty profound. And I did exactly what he said. I burned, got rid of it. I never told anybody about it, except the several thousand people that listen to your podcast.
0: You're being, I think you're being generous with my audience, but I know what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So what do I do with it now? I don't live it every day. I don't see it every once in a while is things are just right. The the shittiest thing in my life will tell you this, because it happened the other night, that bugs. It ended up getting sold to another individual, and it's still painted purple, and it's still got all the stuff on it. It doesn't have a uh, deck on the top of it any longer, but it's still around, and I still see it. And the other night, I drove by, and there it was driving by. Then I said, man, if I had the money, I would buy that thing, and I would have it so fast. Shipped over to China to be turned into a washed machine. I wouldn't even think twice about it. The memory still lives there, and it's every once in a while you'll find something that triggers it, but I don't, I don't precipitate on it every single day. I don't, don't let it control me. I try my best to forget about it. And like I said, every once in a while you'll see something that'll just trigger it. Okay. To tell you the truth, there's anything. I can remember before the incident. Talking to the guy who was killed. And I can tell you exactly what he wore. I know exactly what his shirt looked like. And it was the school colors and it was a checkered pattern and I know exactly what it looks like. See that in my mind just is weird. And it was one of those deals that if I see that shirt, if I see a pattern that looks like that, and that guy's face pops in my head. And I remember his face before and after. And I can remember what it looks like, and I can remember everything about it. Just like sometimes when you drive past a roadside memorial, and I can remember every detail of a call that happened 20 years ago, I can remember that level of detail, and I can remember what I said to the guy, I remember what he said to me. If I see just that shirt, that's a pattern that's very similar to that. That whole conversation will pop into my head. It's just it's just a it's just a trigger that'll He'll push that button right then and there. So doesn't happen often. So there was one, one day we were going through a store and there was a shirt like that was on sale. My wife said, What do you think about that? I said, Definitely not.
0: So, so how long do you, uh, how much time do you spend in the county company as the assistant chief?
1: I stayed there until 2012. I had had an opportunity to
0: move on to a
1: totally different career outside of the fire service. And it was related to where I started, what got me into the fire service. And, and I approached the chief and said, hey, this opportunity exists. And if you're going to retire in two or three years, I'll stick around. But if you think it's going to be longer, I'm going to pursue this. And so in, in 2012, he said he was going to stick around for longer than I said. Public tribe for this. So I applied for this different job and I ended up leaving the fire service in 2012 as the assistant chief. I stayed on as a volunteer because I still lived in the county and I lived in an area that was underserved. I became, went back down and became a battalion chief. And a battalion chief was basically a, the chief of that station. So we had the different fire stations, the 16 different fire stations, each one of them. Kind of battalion chief that was in charge of that station. And so that's what I became for a couple of years. And then the friend that holds the fire truck with me, his side gig, he was always a volunteer. He was actually a volunteer chief of a neighboring department in a different county, a neighboring county that's adjacent to the big city where we're at. And he was the chief there, but he was one of his side gigs. It was, he was a builder. And he was going to build a house. And he, so he ended up that he built a home for me. And it was in that county, in uh, the adjacent county. So I, I left Raleigh County altogether and went over there. And uh, stayed stayed on a couple of years. I tried to in that department. And I a guy who was the lieutenant who was supposed to mentor me. I was his mentee and he was going to mentor me. And he was upset because I didn't go to command, I didn't go to where he was going to teach me about incident command, he, and I looked at him and said, I've been an incident commander for 17 years, but I think I need to go to a class about incident command. I pretty much, said, you're not going to teach me anything about incident command, but I don't already know. And he said, you're just a firefighter. I said, okay, now I'm done. I'm out of this. <laughs>
0: so
1: I decided I could go backwards. And they didn't want to play the roles that they had there. So I said, I'm done. I'm going to pop out of it. I actually got on their advisory board and just served as a citizen on their advisory board to help with the direction of their, the fire department in the area that I was protected by for my new home. So I got totally out of it. 2016, I was done. I turned in my final bit of turnout gear and haven't worn any since. I still put a helmet on every once in a while, but I take the fire truck out to do parade or hang a flag. So I still got my leather helmet and I'll wear that when I, when I drive a fire truck. Totally out of it and then completely retired and, and haven't gone to a call since 2016. It's been seven years.
0: Uh, One of the things you talked about when we had our phone call was that you, you never really thought about it or you never really had nightmares or anything until you retired. And that's when... You've talked about experiencing some nightmares and some nights where it's sleepless nights where you just stay up and kind of get the hours over with before the daybreak comes. You, how do you describe that? And what do you think brings that on for you?
1: Yeah. I don't know what brings it on, but there'll be nights when, when I just see a call or go to a call. Part of that, part of the time from 2001 through 2012, I was a, I was the best uh, so I was a certified fire investigator, some called an arson investigator. So anytime there was a fatal fire, I was in on that. We actually go to the autopsies, do everything as, that we had to do as as far as fire investigators, and we would do that in conjunction with either the state fire marshal's office or the local police department the investigation division. So. I was very involved in some of those. and when It was a fatal fire. You were involved in all aspects of it. And so sometimes those would pop up. I'll just have a night when somebody pops in your head. and Anybody who's been in this job, they'll remember those people. And they remember it. And sometimes it's the guy on the bus who was killed. Sometimes it's somebody who was in a car that you have to cut out of the car. Should I have a patrol to do their investigation. Sometimes those people just pop into your head. When that happens, uh, most of the time, I'll just, I know I'm awake. I'll wake up, and it's okay, i will awake now, and I'm not going back to sleep because I don't want to see that guy again. So sometimes I'll just do something mind-bending, like like, whether it's turning on the TV or going into my office. Anymore. And mm-hmm. that never happened while I was on the job. There was a couple times when it did, but it wasn't very, very often. And I would say that I've had more of those the last seven that I had in the previous eight. I don't know why that is, I'll tell you but since leaving the job I've had more of those types of dreams than I had while I, was in it, while I was in it and I don't know if there is any studies out there I don't know if anybody's looking at that if that's a phenomenon or if it's just me
0: Yeah. And we also talked about that. I'm curious as to whether that's happening more and I haven't heard yet. And it's not something I've researched, but it's something I I need to research because I'm interested in, in if that is a phenomenon, I'm not sure. So maybe people listening that can, listening to this can maybe chime in and let us know if they're experiencing some of the same things.
1: Yeah, I don't know. And again, that's one of those that sometimes you, whether it's a spell or whether it's the environment, but when you're asleep, that's something totally different. And don't ask me why it pops up that way, but it sure check does. And it's one of those that the, it, it doesn't run my life. It doesn't happen every night. Sometimes it'll go months. It sometimes I'll have two or three in one week. So I haven't ever sat down and journaled or recorded incidents or, you know, why are these talking I really don't care if it happens and it just doesn't, that's fantastic.
0: Where are you today? What are you doing today? You talked about the nightmares. You talked about the things you've experienced and you and I talked about the fact that you haven't been to therapy, but you do have some outlets. So what are your outlets today and how are you dealing with things?
1: My outlet, my number one,
0: I had I'm a therapist. I've been married to you a
1: true. For over 30 years, she's always been my therapist and yeah. she always knew when I had a bad call. And there was times when I would say, you know, it was a bad incident. I want to talk about it now. And she wouldn't. Or there were times when I would say, it was a bad incident. I'll tell you about it later. And she said, we'll talk about it later. The day of the incident that I was the witness and I saw it occur, she was the first phone call I made. And it was one of those that I got to talk to her for I didn't even want to sit there and talk like that. Either. I wanted to get on the phone and talk to her and tell her what was What's going on. Right? And, and number one, to protect her. And number one, said she she, number two, so she didn't just turn on the TV and there it is. Going, what the hell happened here? So that was one of those things that, that she is always the first person I talk to. And so
0: in, in a way, that
1: is my therapy. It was my therapist. Now you ask what I'm doing? I'm totally outside of the fire. Uh, I still get an email every day from the Secret List. That's one of those things that I was big on when that first started, and I was one of the first people who signed up for the Secret List to, to get those things from Billy Gottseder. And I would, I remember getting those emails all the time, and so I still get them. So that's really my only time to the fire service, the fact that I still own a fire truck. I'm sitting in my office right now looking at my fire plaques and a badge and different pictures of different incidents that occur at the firefighter's prayer. That's all still on my wall. And so in my eyes, I'm still finding those will be tattoos on my body that say the same thing. There's one of the tattoos I have are there's days I miss it nights ago and i think we just talked about that just a moment ago there's things i missed doing that job there's and it's and all of it revolves around the people those are the people that the firefighters that i dealt with didn't get paid a dime uh, they didn't of the goodness of their heart and they were dedicated and they were professional even though they didn't receive any compensation for it their compensation came in other ways and so that's the part of miss is dealing with the people who have the heart and the compassion to do what they're doing for absolutely no pain. It could be the reason why I never could do it as a volunteer after I left for being the assistant chief because I, in my eyes, I don't think I could ever be as good as those. I, I don't think I would have ever been as good as they were, even though I was paid the whole time. I don't think I can ever be as good as those people who did it for no paycheck because I wasn't getting a paycheck if I was going to be a volunteer, but I set my, you know, I set my bar pretty high based on those people that those 175 people that I dealt with on a daily basis. And so perhaps in my mind, that was a way for me to say, I just can't be as good as them and I'm just going to try. So I didn't go down that route, but today I'm in a totally different industry that doesn't have anything to do with fire. Mm. That's it's in sales and it allows me to utilize my skills as a people person to go out and talk to the customers Mm. on a daily basis, because what I sell sells itself, I just have to go out and establish relationships with customers. And that part I could do. That part, I can knock it out because I have dealt with people that I established relationships that that were doing it based upon their compassion and their willingness to give. So if I could be anything like them and then doing what I'm doing is a piece of cake. So it's funny. I, in sales, sometimes you can run into stressful situations. And my colleague in another town, in another city, pretty large city, on the other side of the state, he tells me all the time how stressful the job is. And I just look at him and said, I didn't see a dead body today. I didn't have to look for somebody's grandma's Bible in a burned out house. I didn't have to cut a kid out of a car today. So this job is not stressful. I got deadlines and I got to get stuff done, but it's not stressful. Trust me.
0: I talked about that. I talked about that with a friend after you and I talked, I said, he came up with a great point. You had said that a salesman or somebody in your office had said, man, I've had a bad day. And you went, no, none of us have had a bad day. And you were, your point was I've had bad days before. I've been there when people have had bad days. None of us have had bad days today. Today was not a bad day. Nobody got hurt. Nobody died. We didn't have a bad day. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it really does make sense.
1: Yeah. And that's how I stay grounded where I'm at now. And I have a different attitude than other people in my profession now, because I don't sweat this bullshit. stuff. I'm like, there's a lot of big things in life that you got to deal with and making a sale and having a customer that's upset about something or quality of a product or whatever. That's nothing. I've had people scream at me because their kid's dead. I've had people tell me I'm not doing my job because their house is burning down. I've had people sit there and say, you got to do something for this guy, even though it's pretty obvious that you can't do anything for this guy because injury is inconsistent with life. I've been trained about that. And so I know there's nothing I can do for this guy. That's stress. That's, that's When you get that tunnel vision, when you don't realize that there's a truck with a 150 decibel siren coming at you, when you think that it takes them 15 minutes to get there when it took them three, that's your body being stressed, but it's waking up at three o'clock in the morning and see it. It was deceased 15 years ago. That was, that's stress and this other stuff, it's just noise. So it's, it's one of those things that, that. I don't know how some people do this for 40 years. And I don't know that there's an answer out there. I've heard you say it before, Stack, when do I know it's time to leave? When do I know it's time to leave this profession? That's not a question that any one person can answer, but you. And it's when I've decided that this isn't what I want to do anymore. that's when you got to do it.
0: Yeah. It's such a, it's such a personal answer because. And if you've heard me say it, is it five years? Is it 10 years? Is it 30 years? Yeah. What is that time? that time isn't a time to- it, or that, that, that choice isn't time-based. That choice is commitment interest-based and burnout-based.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just that one incident. Sometimes it's somebody saying, I don't ever want to go through that again in my life. And if I stay in this job, I'm going to have to,
0: and I know I will. Yeah. The you know? truth of the matter is you could go through it tomorrow. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you've heard them say before, there's departments out there where guys are running, they're running codes or stoppages on breathers, four or five times a shift in 24 hours. And there's some people that go four or five months without seeing one. There's different people have different limits and what what you have to realize is when you've reached that limit. And I've heard story after story from your podcast where people just kept pushing through and so for them, they had a hard time and I get that. I've been blessed to be able to not have to remember some of those things or not remembering some of those things and not having it control my life the whole time. But there's some people that don't get that choice and it makes it hard for them. So it's tough. Am I glad I made the call when I did? Yeah, I really am. I've enjoyed the last seven years I'm not going on call. And part of mine was I was on call 24-7, I was home. I was on call. And it didn't matter whether I was low in the yard or checking the oil or fixing dinner or a birthday party or at the middle of the grocery store with the tones with us. I'm leaving. Gotta go. Somebody needs me now. So I gotta leave.
0: Yeah. Cause that's a little different from, okay, i worked 24 hours, but I know for at least the next 24 hours off, my brain can shut down. My brain can, you know, whether it's recover or rest, maybe not necessarily, but at least it's not on, on alert for those 24 hours where you, as somebody who's going to respond to a call from home, even as a paid guy, you're responding to a call from home. You're always on edge, so to speak. Yep. Yep. And that was, right. there were times where.
1: My therapist was asleep in the bed and I told her I was going on a call and gave her a kiss and left, came back four hours later, got back in bed and she got up the next morning and said, come on, let's go. We got stuff to do. And I'm like, I was up all night. You were? Yeah, I went on a call like 1130 last night after you went to sleep. I told you goodbye and you told me to be careful. And I left and I came back at five o'clock this morning and I haven't slept all night. She's like, oh, I slept hard. I slept through that and they realized. it. <laughs> I didn't have four woods, but it's a bad thing that she can sleep that hard. I envy her sometimes. So, but it, there were many nights. I think I told you the story, but the day that I got the phone call from when I left my job, I was out on the highway and had been out there all night. It was in, it was in May and the university graduation had just occurred. And there was an incident where some individuals in a truck were, were, had been out partying and they, they went headlight to headlight with somebody in a construction zone. And so we got called, there was two fatalities and we were out there all night. It was one of those, the highway patrol came in, did their investigation. We had to remove the bodies out of the car and then later we had to remove the seats and stuff out of the vehicles for the highway patrol to go in and get the airbag modules. They knew we had the tools, so they showed us where these airbag modules were located so that we could go in there so that they could get those airbag modules out of there. It's basically a black uh, And so they were able to do that. And so while I was still sitting in my trunk out on the closed highway, I got the phone call and they offered me a job. And I said, you know what, you called on oh, like a good day because <laughs> It's pretty likely that I'm going to say yes because I, I don't know that I want to do it, what I'm doing now. And it was one of those that, that I got the call at shortly right. before midnight and they called me at nine o'clock in the morning. So I'd been out there for over nine hours. And that was a school night. So that was, that's one of those things that, again, I went on those calls all the time. And if I was home, I was on duty.
0: So let's get into my final two questions before I hold you all night here. We've already been going for, we're getting close to two hours right now. I told you I could wrap. Oh, no, you're fine. I appreciated it. You gave me space to sit there and listen. So hopefully I didn't, hopefully I didn't listen too much and I should have spoken up some more, but you, you know what I call the it's show, the things we all carry and you've listened. So you probably know exactly yeah. why I carry it, or why I call it the things we all carry. So I ask everybody, what's an everyday carry for you?
1: my everyday carry it's pretty easy i have a zippo lighter my wife gave it to me over 20 years ago and it was for lighting cigars and initially i carried it to light cigars um later on i started carrying it during fire season because when you're out in the grass and if you find yourself in a location where you might get overrun you don't have time to dig into the ground deploy a fire shelter or anything like that so you light a fire and you hope that you can get a big enough fire around you that you can get into the black and let that fire roll over you and you'll be okay so i always carried something in my nomex with me at all times that i could start a fire and a zippo was really good and on zippo is inscribed the word be careful and i told you leave whether it was mowing the yard or change the oil in the truck or make some dinner or whatever, when I would go to leave, my wife would always tell me, be careful. And my response to her was always. And so she had that put on that lighter. And so I always had that in my pocket. And lately I still carry that thing every day. Um, So I wanted to make sure that I still have something to remind me to be careful. I just drive down the road now, thousands of miles a week, and I probably have more close calls in the last seven years than I had as a firefighter because people driving nowadays, they're not watching, they're texting, and there's more people come across that center line at me than I care to talk about, and maybe that's part of my nightmare problem, but I always carry that lighter with me so much so that I had to be careful tattooed on the horn, so that while I'm driving, I can actually see those words, be careful all the time. So that's my everyday carry. I just use it to light cigars now though.
0: I was going to say it's a little safer, but we won't even get into the, to the cigar issue. We all know where firefighters stand on cigars and how departments stand on cigars. So we'll just leave it at that. How about that? There you go. All right. So what about a book? What have you read lately? (laughs)
1: Lately, say your suggestion, I read the the one tattoos and trauma.
0: Okay, great. That was that's a great one.
1: I like that. I have a few myself. Makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of people, but probably my big one that I I enjoyed the most. It's a short read. It's a quick read. It's called Who Moved My Cheese? And it's I don't know if it's you call it a self help book, or what? But it was by Spencer Johnson, and it's. It talks about change. There's seven lessons in that book. And those lessons are be prepared for change, move on and let go of the past, be open-minded to new things, imagine success, handle your fears, learning to enjoy change, and then be prepared for continuous change. I first read it when I was in the fire service and was a leader. I think I read it when I took the fire service fire officer. I read that book because... And the fire service changes constantly. And so we were always under change. And we were doing things different. And knowing how to handle that change was big. And trying to explain to firefighters why we were doing things different, we were doing that to try to keep them safe, make improvements. And really, change has always been present. And it's always going to be present. And, and it is. It is continuous. I saw a product that's been around for decades. But yet, it's constantly undergoing change. And even in the industry, even in sales, even in everything that we're doing right now, whether it's inflation or whether it's supply chain issues or whatever, constantly bombarded with that. And so I just think back to that little book, and it's not very big, and it probably only took me a half hour to read it, but it talks about dealing with change. It's basically about four mice in a maze and how they get comfortable with finding the cheese in the exact same spot every time that somebody moves it. And so you either adapt or you just sit there and ask who moved my cheese. It's kind of easy, but <laughs> hey. Yeah.
0: You had to get that pun in, right?
1: I did. I really did.
0: <laughs> Sir, I appreciate this conversation very much. First of all, thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you for being patient as I took my time getting back to you. And I apologize for that, but I think it was well worth it. And like I said, thank you for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I don't tell the same story that everybody else does. And, but I thought it was one that was important. And, there's a whole segment out there in the fire service. That's totally different than the career departments. And I'm proud that I represented that and I'm proud that I had the opportunity to help that department develop is something that I take a little bit of credit for. There was a lot of vision by a lot of people, but I was just the one that, that helped facilitate it. And so having that opportunity and being able to be a part of that was big. The fact that you gave me an opportunity to tell my story and talk about the things that affect me. I appreciate that too. And I appreciate what you're doing too. Um, you know, we had an incident here in Kansas not long ago where a pretty high level chief ended up taking his own life. And there was a firefighter that, that she's not there any longer, but she's down in a different city and I, she knew him and it was her captain. And I reached out to her and she wasn't having a good time. You he with some resources to send her towards. The stuff that you do out there is pretty darn important. And it's good that you're out here trying to bring some light to some of the stuff that there's people in that industry that want to hide it and or don't want to talk about it and those days are over. we need to change so
0: well i thank you very much for that i think that the very best i do is just give a platform to for people to speak and to tell their story and if if i can get those stories across to people then i then that's a win for me so i appreciate the words and i appreciate you coming on all right And you go enjoy the rest of your evening and I'm sure you and I will be in touch and uh, we'll talk to our friend that we have in common there and uh, we'll figure something out in the future, man. All right. Take care. Go enjoy your night, man. All right. You too. And we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry. Head over to the website thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.